The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. I invite you to turn there to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, looking at verses 8 through 20 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Let's now give our attention as God Himself speaks to us in His Holy Word. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, or are in darkness. He eats in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This concludes the reading of God's word. May God be pleased now to add his blessing to it. Well, if you were to give a survey and ask, what is one of the greatest frustrations in your life? I'm sure on the top three would be finances. Money occupies much of our life. We spend a large majority of our time working in order to make money and save money. If you want to do practically anything, you need money to do it. Even the free lunches that they're handing out for kids over the summer, guess what? That costs money. It doesn't come immediately out of your pocket. It comes out of your pocket via paying your taxes. And so it's no surprise that in talking about the vanity of life, Solomon brings up money. While he warns against the vanity and danger of it, he is no pietist. There is a legitimate need for it, and even an enjoyment 
of it given as a gift of God. And so we're going to look at three considerations regarding money in this vain world. First is power, and the second is precarious. That is, money is uncertain. And then third, proper. There's a proper use for it. So first, uh, power. You see in verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So Solomon moves from the house of God, which is the previous passage, the area where there is to be no vanity, a vanity-free zone, back into the realm of vanity. It makes sense that he starts talking about money and finances and tells us not to be shocked in a province, a region overseen by a governor or lesser magistrate when there is injustice in this area. Now, he's not saying, hey, don't be concerned about it. It's not really that big of a deal. Why are you getting so upset? Rather, he is saying, don't be shocked as if it's completely unsuspected because we live in the realm of vanity, after all. And the specific reason Solomon gives here is this hierarchical structure. A high official is watched by someone over him and so on and so forth. And what this is getting at is that the system pads the one who actually can make the decisions, the one who actually has authority. Have you ever tried calling a company and complaining about something? Who picks up the phone? The CEO? The one who can actually make a decision? Usually it's not even someone who lives in our country that answers the phone. I learned this early on. As a kid, I decided to complain about the potato chip bag not being full. You open it up, it's, it's only half full. And even as a kid, it's like, hey, something's wrong with this. So I called the 800 number, my high-pitched voice, and they called me ma'am. I went along with it. And I was like, why is, why is the potato chip bag not full? You know? And they're like, well, it's a preserver. And I was like, I don't believe that. And, but I realized even then I'm not going to get anywhere. And that's the way it is. You're not going to talk to the CEO. You're going to talk to a minimally paid customer service rep who can't do anything about it. The best thing you could do is talk to their supervisor, and they're not going to be able to do anything about it. only thing they could do is follow a policy set in place by their higher-ups whom you will never talk to. That's kind of what's going on here, this padded system. Even in our form of government, which is supposed to bypass this, where you have representatives you vote for, you can interact with, even in our system, good luck trying to talk to someone that actually can make a decision. During the whole COVID thing, uh, when I was able to talk with our governor directly, people outside our state, friends of mine, were shocked that I can do that. And really, we shouldn't be shocked. We should be able to do that. It's this uh, doctrine of the the lesser magistrate, as it's been called, where you can actually interact with those who make decisions. But even in our form of government, you still can't do that. And that's that's what's going on here. These, These guys are sheltered. And that's why uh, Solomon says, don't be surprised at this. And the injustice that Solomon specifically has in mind, it pertains to finances, uh, the laborer getting his wages. Because we see in verse 8, this injustice happens at the poor. And then in verse 9, Solomon says in a sarcastic way, but this is, gr- this is gain for land in every way. A king committed to cultivating fields, 
So again, this is sarcasm. It's, it's, it's gain for the land. A king committed to cultivating fields. It's actually beneficial for the king uh, that you cultivate your own field because it keeps the economy going. It keeps taxes going. It's supposed to be a benefit for everybody, but really it's a benefit for the king in the context here of injustice. He's telling you it's for your benefit, but it's actually not. This is a major part of the violation of righteousness of which Solomon speaks. The kings or higher-ups concerned are only for the operations and welfare of the kingdom and not of the workers. As long as things are running smoothly, that's all that matters. What need is there to be concerned about anything else? Things are running smoothly. The workers are working. No need to be concerned about anything else. Concern only arises when the operations are threatened and not the welfare of the workers. And especially back in their day, uh, the rich would restrict uh, their wages, uh, the wages of the laborers. We see in James 5, uh, this is the case, where the workers who are truly worthy of their wages are not given the wages of which they are worthy. It was quite a problem in their day. But really the only concern is that the operations run smoothly regardless of how they are being cared for. And according to Solomon here, this is a common injustice and violation of righteousness uh, that we shouldn't be surprised exists in this world, but that Christians should have no part in, especially if you're in a position of power. I know there's always difficulty at the fire people, uh, but care for the workers that are under you and not just the operations. A second consideration regarding money in this vain world is its precarious nature. That is, it's not secure, it's uncertain. Verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with, the, with his income. This also is vanity. So notice this verse does not say, He who has money will not be satisfied, but it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied. The issue is not the possession of money, but the love of money. And so someone could be poor and still be a lover of money. On the other hand, someone can have a lot of money and not be a lover of money. Possession is not the issue. It's the love of money that's the issue. It's whether or not it's an idol. It becomes an idol when we depend upon it for our our ultimate satisfaction happiness, and security. But just like with any other good creational thing, it's not ultimately the thing, but it is rather the heart. Uh, There was a a, a news interview with a billionaire. And the, uh, I think the journalist was trying to get creative. And this journalist asked uh, the question to this billionaire, which million were you most satisfied with? And he responded almost immediately, well, the next million. Always wanted more and more and more, never satisfied. Not only does money make a really bad God, it also does not satisfy in other ways. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? 
So this is the basic principle of it costs more to make more. It, it costs more to have an expanded operations. It, it costs more to get those going. It costs more to keep those going. Uh, the more employees you have, the more overhead and production costs, the more taxes you pay. Also, friends, and I put that in scare quotes, friends and family come out of the woodwork uh, when you have a lot of money. Not because they want to bless you and they care about you, uh, but because they know you can bless them. And this is actually, I was really struck by this as I was studying this and seeing some of these statistics. This is actually a huge issue with those who get rich. I read uh, one story of an NFL player who was paying for 60 different cell phone plans when he only had one. And then I saw a stat that 78% of professional football players, keep this in mind, Alex, 78% of professional football players uh, end up going bankrupt after a couple of years, in large part because of these leeches. They were just, there's something that just tugs the heartstrings or conscience is afflicted because they have so much money and they just end up get, kind of giving it all away and then they end up losing it. And that's kind of what Solomon is talking about here. Also, their wealth does not satisfy as it pertains to their sleep. You see in verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So the common laborer who makes ends meet has something that money can't buy. Whereas he sleeps well, the rich do not. Because he labors. Now, we say this pretty often, don't we? After a really hard day of labor, whatever the activity is, what do we say? Boy, I'm going to sleep well tonight. There's a reason we say that, because that, this hard labor does lead to this good sleep. But the full stomach of the rich, really a lot of inactivity. I have luxury. I have all that I need. I don't even need to lift a finger. That causes them to not sleep very well. And also the concerns of his, his business and keeping his money might also cause him to lie awake at night. And this is a legitimate concern because verses 13 and 14 say, this is a grievous, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the, their owner to their hurt, to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Main point, riches are very uncertain. A person here, in this case, had accumulated riches. And this doesn't happen overnight. Several years, sweat, planning, stress over a hundred different decisions. And yet, one bad venture is all it took. Gone. It might have just been a bad investment. It might have simply just been a bad decision. Not necessarily a foolish one, just the wrong one. Like I couldn't predict the future. If I would have known, I would have taken this course of action. But what this is saying is that wealth, while it usually takes time to work to build up, can be lost in an instant. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 
We are to not set our hope in the uncertainty of riches. Now this is not to say we shouldn't work or save money. Rather, your conclusion should be, what a vain life this is. And as the verse starts out by saying, this is a grievous evil. Now, evil in the Bible is used in two senses. One is a immoral evil. This is where things should not be the way they are as it pertains to how one lives uh, according to the law of God. But then in a broader sense, evil is used in the Bible as things aren't, the things, uh, this is not the way things should be in light of a sin-cursed fallen world. It just, it's not right in a sense. And God did it that way as part of the punishment. It's a curse. It's not a blessing. It's a curse. And so this is what Solomon's talking about here. A grievous evil. This is not the way it should be. This is a hardship. Notice the Bible's not saying, this is just the way it is. Get over it. Don't worry. Be happy. Rather, He's saying this is a grievous evil. This is the hardship of living in this sin-cursed world. And this should even grip our emotions as we we read this here. He has a son. He has an error. And that's a huge deal back then. But he had nothing in his hand to give him. He lost it all in a bad venture. That's the way this life can go. And you see in Proverbs 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So a good man thinks about this, about providing for his family even when he's gone. But here, this good man, one bad venture, lost it all. This is a grievous evil. And then greater than this is the reality of death in verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Not only does his son not have an inheritance, he too does not have an inheritance. All that he worked for, he takes nothing out of this world. As he came into this world, so he leaves. But again, this is not just the way it is. Smile and get over it. Rather, we should say with Solomon in verse 16, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? This is part of the curse. Yes, it's a normal experience, but it's part of the curse. If death has the final word, What gain does he have? It is all working hard just to chase the wind. It's futile and empty. All his gain in the end is nothing. And this all comes at a great cost. Ironically, verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, or better translated, all his days are darkness. He eats in much vexation and sickness. In anger. This is a great sorrow in the ancient Near East. It puts a great importance on eating, on meals, but 
his eating is done in vexation and sickness and, and, and anger. And he is alone. His pursuit of riches and money to no avail has cost him a lot. Much anger and vexation comes from the love of money. And the constant concern that weighs on him leads to poorer health and sickness, it says. This reveals the vanity of pursuing money. But again, as verse 10, the start of our section said, it's not money itself, but rather the love of money. This is where we need to make careful distinctions, not go in a ditch in either way. Working, making a living, providing for goods and planning ahead is a good thing. It's part of a creation ordinance required by God. We saw that at the beginning. But the, the lazy glutton is condemned in Scripture. And if one does not provide for his own family, then he is worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. Also, money can be properly enjoyed, which leads to the third and final consideration regarding money in this vain world. We saw first, power. Second, it's precarious. Now third, there is a proper use. Verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and money to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So Solomon is no legalistic pietist. That is, if you want to be truly pious and spiritual, you need to be poor. Our fleshly tendency in trying to avoid sin and feed self-righteousness is to become ascetics. Oh no, you don't have to you can't enjoy anything and I will let you know about it. Look how much I've suffered. Look how righteous I am in it. But scripture clearly condemns this way of thinking. In Colossians 2, Paul warns against submitting to legalistic rules of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says all of this is useless in stopping the indulgences of the flesh, it really just flows out of puffed up pride. He says all of this misses the point and thinks that the issue is the thing rather than the heart. It ends up actually laying the blame on the creator rather than the heart that abuses what the creator has given. And this is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that doctrines of demons, so what Satan would teach. If Satan were to teach something, this is what he would teach. Is that we are to avoid marriage and certain foods in order to be more holy. But Paul goes on to remind us that these things are, as he says, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And the issue is not the use, but the abuse of the good thing. And Solomon says here 
in Ecclesiastes that not only may we have money, but hear this. This is dangerous. We can enjoy it. For the fourth time in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that, notice what verse 18 says, it is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment from one's toil. You work hard, you get a paycheck, now enjoy it. Responsibly, pay your bills, provide for your family, put food on the table, but enjoyment is not ungodly. It's actually, as it says here, part of the gift of God. Don't drive into the ditch on the one side where you idolize it. That's bad. But neither do we want to be Pharisees, and it is our tendency to drive into the other ditch and hold to demonic legalism. You can't enjoy these good things with the heart of thanksgiving. Solomon says in verse 19 that it is God's good gift to both receive and enjoy it. Notice it's God's gift for both. This is the gift of God. It's not evil. Verse 20 says that's even part of His common grace to alleviate some of the hardship in this life. To make Him not, remember, not much remember the days of His life. That is His hard and vain life. God provides us, as 1 Timothy says, uh, richly in things that we enjoy. We should be thankful. We don't want to trust in them as our Savior for ultimate happiness, security, and deliverance. But neither do we want to be legalistic pietists and say, oh no, can't enjoy it. Rather, as Paul says, we want to be content. Whether we have plenty or we have want, we are content in our God. But as the end of verse 20 says, it is God who is keeping him occupied with joy in his heart. What a good God that he would give any joy to any sinner in his creation, knowing that sinners don't deserve it and often abuse it. But really, this should not come to a surprise to us, even though we often have dark, a uh, dark, hard view of God that, that leads to self-righteous legalism. Because of the ultimate gift that he gave us undeserving sinners in order to have everlasting joy. What do we deserve? We deserve everlasting contempt because of our sin. But apart from first deserving it, cooperating with God's grace, reforming ourselves, making promises to do better next time, or any good thing produced in us, what did God do? God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to be... Not a man of joy, even though he had perfect joy, but to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And why would he do that? He did that, suffering even the greatest grief of having the wrath of God poured out on him, bearing shame and scoffing rude, and having this his name defiled. So that you and I, who never deserved it nor ever can, might have fullness of joy 
in His presence. He suffered so you could have joy. And why would He do this for you? You look down the corridors of time and see something special in you that you did that others didn't do. No, rather He did it out of His sheer love and grace. There, We can look long and hard. We will never find a reason why He would do this in and of ourselves. He did it because He is a good God. He did it because He even delights to give sinners joy. As Ephesians 1 says, it was His good pleasure to do this, to suffer in our place so that we may be in His presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And this should cause us to say, I have no good apart from Him. And this should cause us to be thankful for any good gift that we do enjoy, knowing from whom it came. And this should cause us to be free from the love of money and and to be content with what we have, knowing that He will never leave us or forsake us. Because He is our inheritance. May we sing truly with the hymnist. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, Thou art. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that this would be truly our heart that you are our treasure, that we are content with whatever you give us. But please provide for us, Lord. You know our needs. Please give us our daily bread. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.